Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Professor of Politics Dale Keane speaks on the importance of democracy, the history and impact of the Christian monastic movement, and what society was like in Jesus' time. So Dale, you're a lecturer at St Anselm's University. What's the background of that university? Uh, the university was founded in 1884 uh, by Benedictine monks uh, who came up from New Jersey to start a university in our Manchester, New Hampshire, which was a new um, working class community. Uh, they brought a lot of Catholics up from Boston, Catholics down from Quebec to work in the factories and the university was founded to educate their children. Is it still run by monks? It is. It's owned and operated by the Benedictine community like so many Benedictine universities. Um, the Benedictines want to have a balanced life of work and prayer and study. And so some Benedictine monasteries uh, brew beer. So if you go through Europe, you're going to find some of the best brewers, especially in Northern Europe, come out of monasteries. The work of St. Anselm is a university. Um, like we know when we're chatting to people in places like Oxford and even while we didn't talk to people in Paris and, uh, and Bologna, that's the start of universities uh, across Europe. How many of the universities in America were started in that same way? Ex except for the land-grant universities, which we call, such as University of Mis Missouri or Minnesota and Illinois, the big universities, virtually every other university in the United States is funded by Christians. And starting with Harvard, moving down to Yale and on to Princeton, going across the Midwest. And in many respects, the story of higher education in America is the secularization of Christian universities. Yeah, because just on that, I mean, now we see universities, as, as you say, very secular, uh, almost pushing faith, religion, Christian faith out of universities. You, you're saying that that was actually the roots of these universities. It was. It was. Um, the Benedictines in what we call the Dark Ages, after the fall of Rome, the Benedictines kept uh, the libraries alive. They kept learning alive. Um, they kept the books of Plato and Aristotle and the other greats and brought them forward. And then later in the Middle Ages, they were the ones that started the first universities outside the monasteries. Why did they start universities? I think it was an expression of their faith. We often think of Christians or those who are religious as rather closed-minded, um, but they were of the belief pretty strongly that all truth is God's truth, that we need to study the whole of creation and keeping learning alive, even with, even the ideas of the pagans, was something that was really important to them. One of the differences between, you, you would see, say, Buddhist monks and other monks, is that they basically get people to, you know, they beg to get what they need. It, it's interesting that in, in the Christian monastic movement was actually a, minute, a movement that worked. So, as in, wasn't functioning, but they actually did work. Why did they do that? For, for the Benedictines, they, they see that spirituality is a product of, of prayer, it's a product of study, and it's a product of work. And so when you look at the calendar of a Benedictine, it's eight hours of each a day. Um, the Benedictines invented the watch, the clock. And the purpose of that was to make sure that they could come together to pray regularly. And every once in a while, you hear the Benedictines kind of say, we wish we hadn't invented the clock. But in a certain sense, because it's used now to limit 
things as opposed to invite us to things. And, and I think the Benedictines just recognized that if you wanted to worship God, there needed to be, a, there was a holistic life that you needed to think about. We often think about, well, it's about prayer, or it's about Bible study, or it's about doing nothing, but that's not the way they understand spirituality and how we best pursue it. And so these monasteries actually became very large institutions, uh, when, which were both education, but also in the area of finances and, and, and what they gained. Yeah. Well, what, what you had was that monasteries are cropping up all across Europe, and they, are, they become farms. They, are, they do become businesses. And what we find is, is that the townsfolks often came to them because they trusted them. And so they became a center, not just of education, but they also became a center of commerce, a center of banking. And part of it was based on their education. They were among the most well-educated people in Europe. And part of it was based on the idea of trust. When we think of capitalism, we often think of you know, markets and we think of capital, we think of banking, we think of regulation. Um, the Benedictines, in some sense, would have agreed with Adam Smith, who came later, which, who said that capitalism can only work if people can trust each other, that there's no amount of regulation that will save capitalism if we can't trust each other. And so in a certain sense, the Benedictines, without intending to do it, became the educators and the bankers and... Um, and a center of life throughout Europe and the United States. In that process, and in also in education and in universities, that was sort of the, 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 the genesis and the foundation for science and the study of science as we now understand it. Absolutely. And the first scientists, um, well, I should say, observing the world goes back a long way. Aristotle, in, in my discipline of politics, Aristotle is known as the first political scientist, but the first scientists um, in modernity in Europe were people of Catholic faith for the most part, Galileo and others. And again, the idea is, is that we can study God's creation. Um, there's no question that the church and all churches have historical moments that they regret. And we think of historical moments in which scientists were put to death for saying things that didn't agree with the teaching of the church. But at the same time, to the church's credit, um, they came around ultimately and said, you know, you're right. Mm. And, and so there has to be something that says, we want to study creation. There's something to study. We need to study every aspect of creation. And in a certain sense, Christianity, Christianity pushed that in a way that um, other religions didn't quite do. Where, where did the, the break occur between science and faith? Because now it's almost right. like if, you, if you're a scientist, you can't possibly have faith. Right. So where did that happen? I think in this movement we call the Enlightenment. And, and what, what began to occur was as people began to study the natural world, um, a number of people came at it with the idea that we can study the natural world and consider things independent of God. And so science began to study things and move in directions that were away from faith. And 
I would say the very best scientists even today um, recognize that the scientific method doesn't really comment on non-material reality and so if they're honest they, they don't make dogmatic statements about faith um, but we find that a number of people began to um, look at science, see where science was going in a certain sense and pronounce that God was dead mm. prematurely. Uh, want to go into the area of, uh, of politics and democracy, which is kind of sure. your, your area that you teach in. What does a kind of country need for a good democracy? Alexis de Tocqueville said that for a democracy to work, you had to have enough people do the right thing when nobody was watching. And so Tocqueville is a Frenchman, comes to the United States in 1830, stays here between 18 months and two years, just goes all around the country studying democracy. And the assumption of the European elite was the United States would fail, democracy would fail, and that they wanted to build alliances with us so that when democracy failed, they could swoop in and take over what the British had. And Tocqueville went back and said, no, democracy is not failing in America. Quite to the contrary, democracy is the wave of the future. And if we want to get it right when it comes to Europe, we need to learn from their example. So, and what Tocqueville discovered was not only does morality matter, but religion mattered. So why did religion matter? Tocqueville looked at looked at America and said, what, what is going to keep us from our, pursuing our own individual self-interest? He believed that people were, no question, were self-interested. But for democracy to work, we had to get outside of ourselves. We had to get to know our neighbors. And we had to work together with our neighbors to make a good community. And Tocqueville said that Christianity was the faith that got us out of ourselves. He didn't say other faiths couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But what he observed was that Americans were working together to create hospitals, to create soup kitchens, to create government, all these things. And many of the people who were doing it were illiterate. And so the very people the European elite said could never make democracy work were the people that were making it work. And Tocqueville said it worked because, because people did the right thing when nobody was watching, and they got outside of themselves and they worked with their community. Did democracy rise in Europe in the same way as it did in America with, with sort of religious or faith roots? I'm, I think it comes out of, of the Enlightenment. I think it comes out of this movement called liberalism philosophically speaking, not as a political ideology. And there's secular foundations to liberalism, but there's also Christian foundations. So John Locke, who writes in Britain in the 1680s, he'd be somebody who, who, who in his own way said democracy can't work unless there's a moral foundation. And you know, he writes this letter on toleration, which is an extraordinarily radical document for his age. But in the document, he says you can't tolerate atheists. And simply, he raises the question, can we be good without God? And there was a sense, even in Jefferson in the United States, that a belief in the divine 
really mattered. I think that's died out, but I think the question's still there. As we see democracies move into the 21st century, I think people are saying, can it work? And we're going to find out. <laughs> because there is a movement now that says, okay, separation of church and state, which is kind of means that the church has no influence on the mm -hmm. state. What is your, in your mind, is separation of church and state? I believe in separation of church and state, which is, I don't want there to be an established church. I don't want there to be a national church. I don't actually believe you can separate religion from politics. Um, my, my Christian faith informs my life on my best days. And so I don't have to go into the public square and quote Bible verses, but my faith impacts the way I engage the world, or it should. And I would expect the same, that's true for many, many others. And I'd say the separation of church and state is a phrase that's misused. It says we need to live in a secular world. The secular world is neutral. The secular world is great. If we were just secular, everything would work out. The problem in this world are the religious fanatics. And in one sense, I can agree. A pr religious fanaticism is a problem in this world, but faith I don't think is. Mm. How would you describe the difference between those two? I believe that one of the things that Christianity says is that Christianity is the author of freedom. I think Paul in his epistles speaks extensively about freedom. And so I believe that one of the things we we're all made in the image of God. We all have the dignity that goes with that. And we're all, freedom is something that, that is part of that. And I want to live in a country where I can go into the public square and say what I believe, have an election. If I win, I win. If I lose, I lose. But I, I would argue that that's a really profound view of freedom and I think that view of freedom that says you don't have to win so long as you have an ability to explain yourself is a great expression of Christian freedom from the scripture. And I think I wish that we had more discussions in the public square about what other philosophies, what other religions would go to such lengths to give people that kind of freedom. I'm unaware. Of, of other movements that would do that. Um, the secularism that I see um, strikes me that they want to limit that. And they, the assumption is that I'm a fanatic. Um, but I would say fanaticism is, is to say you have to limit that. One of the foundational ideas of democracy is that everybody's equal. Yeah. Now, if you go back to Aristotle, as you yeah. mentioned before, there wasn't really that sense of equality across that community. So how did, if there was a democracy in the Greek world, what was it? There was democracy in the Greek world. I mean, they experimented with it, it failed. And that's why the assumption is that it's not gonna work in America in the um, late 1700s. And that's where I say something new had to come into the equation. And I think the new thing that came into the equation was Protestant Christianity, that 
Um, the Protestants came over from Europe. They had a certain way of doing church government that was democratic, and they, extend, they used that model when it came to the state. And if you're talking about liberty, I think the Greeks, Romans would speak to liberty, but this idea of equality, I don't, I don't find that it really shows up until the Reformation. Wow. And, and I think this idea that we're all made in the image of God, in a certain sense, we're endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, our Declaration of Independence, our creed. And that creed is so strong that it challenged us uh, 50 years later to say slavery is wrong, challenged us 125 years later to say women should have the vote. And, you know, I don't find another ideology, another religion that comes along as effectively as Christianity to say we need to treat human beings with dignity, and dignity also means equality. Let me go back to that time, and we're looking at, at um, women and families in the time of Jesus. What was it like, say, the role of a woman or a, a, a woman growing up in Jesus' right. time, the Greco-Roman world? What was that like? I think, generally speaking, women are not educated. The assumption is, is that they couldn't be educated because um, the assumption is, is that there's something inferior about a woman. Aristotle would have said that what's inferior about a woman is that their emotion gets in the way so that they can't think rationally. And so I, I think you're in, you encounter a world in which women are seen to be less than a man. They're not, there's not a lot of expected of them other than having children. They're treated as property. Um, they're treated in a certain sense as a slave. They're owned. And... So for Jesus to come along and to speak to women, to forgive their sins, um, to treat them with the dignity that he did was radical. To be able to go in the home of a religious leader and allow a woman to wash his feet, I mean, with her tears, with perfume, I mean, these are, at the moment, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us. It seems, wow, somebody, used expensive perfume, but probably at the moment it was, my God, what's Jesus doing? This is a woman. And so I think you came to a time in which women and children to be seen and not heard, and um, Jesus upended that. Because Paul picks up that attitude of Jesus, and, and it's interesting that now, we have a world that looks back on some of the writings of Paul and almost treats him like he's a misogynist. But, right. but Paul had, gave women a, a way more freedom. He did. Um, and he's got statements like, there is no East nor West, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. He's really extraordinarily um, forward-looking or radical ways of thinking about men and women. I think my own reading of Paul would lead me to say, he recognizes that it's going to take time mm. for women to be able to get equal status in society. It's going to take time to educate them. I think, I think when he says women should be, shouldn't speak in church, my own reading of that is, is that given the fact that they were uneducated, 
It's probably the case that those particular women in that particular place shouldn't speak in church. But I don't think he was saying women shouldn't be educated or women won't have a moment when they can speak. Um, so I think Paul recognizes it's going to take time to move women out of the place that they were in. Um, but I think he also says and gives vision to let's move to that time. Mm. What about the area of slaves and slavery? Because again, it's that whole idea that there were times when the church didn't have a view that we would agree with today on slavery. Mm -hmm. But there are those who say, well, look, there's the Bible kind of um, endorses slavery. How do you, how do you, do you look, read that? I don't, I don't see Philemon, for instance. I don't see that as an endorsement of slavery. I see it as a recognition in the same way um, that you might say that we recognize the roles that women have at present. Um, I think there's a sense in Scripture where Jesus and Paul and others are, are giving signals about how we were made to be. But at the same time, um, they also say, all of us, we should all be willing to sacrifice our own good, sacrifice our own rights, sacrifice our own agendas in order to further the gospel. And I think at times furthering the gospel means that you don't push the cultural questions farther along than they can be pushed at present. And he says, if you're a slave, you might have to endure that. You might have to endure it for the good of the gospel. You might have to endure it until you get to heaven. And by the way, the language of scripture is, you are my slave. Um, wherever you find yourself on the side of heaven, make the best of it, serve well, and you have an ultimate reward that's coming because on the side of heaven, things aren't perfect. They're not the way they're supposed to be. And I don't think that a recognition of political reality is a, is a statement that justifies it. But I think it's a statement that says, endure it for the good of the gospel. And if you don't like it, tough. <laughs> <laughs> Look at going on to going back to the area of monasteries. Uh, you know, again, that there were there were orders of women. Yep. How how were Because again, we we now look at that and go, that's sort of a little oppressive to women that they're in an order, mm -hmm. etc. They, they weren't the case earlier on because they were able to do a lot of things that other women weren't when they committed themselves to an order. Yeah. Again, I mean, there's on one level. The orders of women did many things, but they were servants. In a certain sense, they often served uh, the priests, they would serve monks, they would serve um, other um, parts of the church hierarchy. But they were invited into a life of servanthood, which includes the poor, which includes hospitals, which includes all manner of thing. And they're educated and they have mass daily, and the priest comes in daily to teach them scripture. And so in a certain sense, these women begin to run the world. And it's not just running the world of a monastery in terms of cooking and sewing and things like that, which is part of it. But when we think of um, religious orders today, the first person in our mind is Mother Teresa, um, who was a servant her entire life in Calcutta. And she was educated. 
And when she came into a room of the most powerful people in the world, it stopped. And so I think that it's really easy to say, you know, this servitude is demeaning, etc. And yet I'd say that um, the religious orders um, probably did more to advance the cause of women than anybody else. Wow. So this series is called Jesus the Game Changer. For you, Dale, how has, have you seen Jesus as a game changer? I think uh, Jesus has profoundly changed the world in which we live and we're hardly aware of it. I think the number one way it's changed this is this idea of love. You go around the culture, you go around talk to people today, love is never very far from the conversation. But prior to Jesus in the Roman and the Greek world, love was not part of the equation. There's virtue, there's ethics, there's all, all manner of thing, but there's not love. I think we assume today that love is kind of niceness, that love is part of a secular world, that um, the secular world can improve on this idea of love. But I think if Jesus doesn't come, we don't have this concept of love that we live with. I don't think we have the same concept of freedom I, I doubt that we have democracy, not because we don't have the imagination to think about democracy, but democracy, again, it depends on people doing the right thing when nobody's watching. And what I'd say is, is take Jesus out of the equation, the game changes profoundly. And when, as Jesus gets taken out of our equation, as we move into a postmodern world, I think we're gonna see that things are gonna change profoundly, the game's going to change profoundly. And I'm curious how long it's going to take for the, for the world to recognize that we might, we might not want to live in a world without Jesus. So Dal, how did Jesus become the game changer for you? Yeah, I came to faith as a young child. And I think I've come to many moments of deciding if I'm going to pursue it further. I think there's times in life when you say, oh my goodness, I'm not sure, is this what I signed up for? And at each one of those moments, I have pushed through. And I think one of the moments was after college, I looked at the world. I wanted to think of what my options were for what I'm going to do with my life. I decided my options were either to be miserable as a pastor or unhappy as a layperson. <laughs> so I opted for unhappiness as a layperson. And that's just because the churches I went to were so dysfunctional. And I decided that. I really cared about Jesus. I really cared about the intersection of heaven and public life. And so I pursued this, uh, getting my doctorate in politics, recognizing that I wanted to stay connected to the church, stay connected to my faith. I had, I remember one place, church I was at, an older woman came up to one, one day with tears in her eyes, wanting to know why I lost my faith when I decided to go get, go get my doctorate in politics. But it's actually been one of the most reassuring things in my faith because I think what I've discovered, and not just me, but many others, is that if Jesus didn't come, we're dead. That politics is the study of how this world works. And as I study how the world works, the miracle is that we haven't destroyed ourselves. The miracle is that we haven't used a nuclear weapon to annihilate ourselves that there's something that keeps this world going. There's something to love, to freedom, to equality, to these ideas that keeps us going. And my sense is that those are ideas of heaven. They're sown into our very nature. 
And so it, as Jesus is the game changer, I don't know if I can imagine a world fully without Jesus, and I don't know that I want to. It, because, because it would be such a different world. And, but because he came, even if post-modernity means we, we lose sight of him for a while, the reality is he's still part of the DNA of all of us. He's still part of the ether. The writings are still there. And my sense is that people are going to continue to gravitate toward Jesus, kind of like a moth to the flame, not necessarily because it's going to make my life better today, but a recognition that there is no better way. And there's no better way on this side of heaven, and there's probably no other way on the other, on the other side. So I think it changes not just people's personal lives, I think it changes the whole world. In fact, I think it changes the world much more profoundly than it changes people's individual lives. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.